pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you that we can gather as your people, that we can gather under the banner of your Son uh, to hear your Son proclaimed. We ask that you would help us to hear your truth. Your people are not gathered here to hear the voice of a man. They are gathered to hear from the living God. They are gathered to hear from their God. They are gathered to hear from the Spirit of God about the Son of God. Would you be pleased to help us, O Lord? Would you open your word to us and us to your word? And would you make your word live to us? We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. So I'm preaching on Isaiah 9, 6, the first half of verse 6. I actually texted Aaron this earlier this week. I'm preaching on half a verse, and when he preached last week at Cornerstone, he said something like he didn't want to steal my thunder. And this is a true story. I leaned over to my wife and I said, what thunder? I'm preaching on half a verse. Um, but praise God that the thunder is not in the preacher. It is in the word of God. As Jeremiah 23 verse 8 says, the Lord speaking through Jeremiah, he says, is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks the rocks. And so... I, you will hear my voice, but it is the Lord God who speaks by his word for his glory. So as we focus on this passage, we think about children. There is an inherent value to having children. Many of you have children. If you don't have children, you like a child somewhere on the planet, I would hope. We often see them as the future, desiring that things would be better for them than they were for us. Some people even joke around that their children are their retirement plan. The Bible tells us that children are a gift from the Lord, a heritage from Him. The loss of them is incalculable. Some people want children but can't have them. Some people have children, but sadly, don't want them. I find it quite fascinating, personally, that children don't come on the scene in the biblical record until after the fall. Have you ever noticed that? And yet, out of that great calamity, that great tragedy, comes a promise of a deliverer who would one day begin to write the evils unleashed in the world because of that fateful decision by our first parents. The greatest evil being the sin that has corrupted our hearts. And so we're going to fast forward to Isaiah to look at the life, or rather the prophecy of a child who is to come. I want to give you my outline just briefly. I wasn't able to get it to Aaron in time. I want us to consider five things that we will see in that first half of Isaiah Chapter 9, verse 6. First, we're going to see that this child is a gift from God. Next, we're going to see that this child is a reminder to them of God's presence. Third, we'll see that this child is a promise fulfilled. Fourth, we'll see that this child is a remedy to our sins. And lastly, that this child 
will reign. The first thing I want you to notice is the emphasis put on the child there. Though it's stated in poetic form, the fact that he's mentioned twice speaks to his importance, the centrality of God's work of redemption. This is similar to when Moses met God at the burning bush in Exodus 3, when God called his name twice, Moses, Moses. Or Samuel the prophet when he was a child in 1 Samuel 3 when he first came to know the Lord and the Lord called his name twice as well. Samuel. Samuel. And when the Lord does that, it is to call importance to what he is going to do through the person who is the object, the subject of the text. Also, we can't make light of the fact that the God gives a child. This means that he will be born. He will come into the world like every other child. He will be carried in the womb for nine months. When he's born, he will be swaddled. He will be burped. And yet he will be unlike any other child before him or any other, other child after him because he will be called to do a work unlike any other child, a purpose that God has for him. You see there that this child is also a son, a son who will rule and reign. There is no greater gift than, that God can give than the gift that he offers you in his son. This is truly, in a good way, the gift that keeps on giving. There is no relationship more precious than the one that God offers you with himself through his son. Have you received this gift? If you have, have you shared it? Or have you kept it to yourself? If not, do you think nobody else is worthy of this gift? Nobody else deserves it? What makes you deserving? What makes you worth it? Didn't someone else share this gift with you? Wasn't it done through the preaching of the word? Or perhaps a friend offered you the gift of God's Son through the gospel. Let's say if someone isn't deserving of it, don't they need it? Don't they need Christ? Wasn't it God who ultimately pursued you to offer you his son? You see also there that this child is a reminder to them of God's presence. Well, who is them? Well, we must always remember that when the biblical authors, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote Holy Scripture, that they were first of all writing to a particular audience. Peter, writing to the churches some 800 years after Isaiah's time, writes, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Isaiah the prophet, who wrote the book that bears his name, wrote to a people living and who were at war in the 8th century B.C., some 700 years before Christ was born. 
As a matter of fact, if you went back and read chapter 7, you would see that God had sent Isaiah with his own son to encourage the king to trust God. Well, why did God do this? Because Ahaz, who was the ruling king at this time, the king of Judah, was scared. Well, what was he scared of? Well, if you turn to Isaiah 7, just flip back a page or two in your Bible, you will see it there in Isaiah 7, verses 1 and 2. Let me read that. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, King of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So, quick primer on Bible history, the United Kingdom under Saul, under David, who succeeded Saul, reached its zenith under Solomon. After Solomon died, the kingdom was fractured. Twelve tribes of Israel, you had the ten northern tribes, and then you had the two southern tribes, made up of Judah and Benjamin. Ahaz here is a descendant of King David, and that's why it says, the house of David. And in the north, you have a ruling king who has who has made an alliance with the king of Syria to go up to Judah to wage war, and they lay siege to it. That's why Ahaz is scared. So God sends Isaiah, and Isaiah serving as his spokesman. That's what the prophets were. They were God's ambassadors, God's messengers from God to his people, bringing messages of blessing and of judgment. He goes to Ahaz and tells him not to worry about these two nations that have come up against Judah to lay siege to it. God says that as we would say in the way we speak today, that they are all bark and no bite. God even goes so far as to tell Ahaz to ask him for a sign. Confirmation that God will do what he has said he will do, which is to save the nation of Judah. Actually, he goes as far as to say to ask him for any sign. Ahaz, anything you want for me to show you that I will in fact help you, ask me and I will do it. Now, if you know your Bibles, that should give you pause. Because that's not something God does very often. As a matter of fact, if you read your Bibles, there have been people who have died because they failed to take God at his word. They failed to believe what he said. See, that's what we call the sin of unbelief. Because not to believe God is to call him a liar. Nobody here likes to be called a liar when you're telling the truth, do you? And we are all sinners. We've all lied at some point. And if you say to yourself that you've never lied, well, you are lying to yourself right now. But not God. And moreover, he's willing to prove that he's telling the truth, that he will save Ahaz and Judah. But you know what Ahaz does? Ahaz refuses that. And if you keep reading the, the text, and I won't point you there, but he says, no, I'm not going to ask for a sign. You see, the reason that Ahaz has done that is that he has already decided, and you pick this up when you read the other historical books of the Bible, the Old Testament specifically, Ahaz has already decided that he's not going to trust God. He is going to trust the arm of man. And as we know, that doesn't go well for him. 
It's interesting to note also that the sign that God was going to give Ahaz wasn't fire from heaven. It wasn't a mighty earthquake. It wasn't even a great army. The sign that he was going to give him was a child. You see that there if you look at Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And that's what we're looking at in greater detail in the ninth chapter of Isaiah. You see, brothers and sisters, it never goes well for us when we decide to forsake God's plan and go our own way. See, because God sent his son, we have rescue. We have the hope of rescue from our sin. God has promised to never leave nor forsake those who have looked to him, who have trusted in his son. I think we also see there in that passage in Isaiah 9, that verse, that this child is a promise fulfilled. 700 years. That's how long it was before this child was born. How many lives came and went in 700 years? How many nations rose and fell in 700 years? How many people stopped believing that a deliverer would come in 700 years? How many people kept believing that God would send a deliverer, this child, in 700 years? God kept his promise, sending the deliverer, the child he had promised. In the first chapter of his gospel, I won't have you turn there, but in the first chapter of the gospel of Matthew, Matthew points to this passage in um, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 to capitalize on that by the Holy Spirit's inspiration to show that God did indeed fulfill his promise speaking of the birth of Christ. Matthew says in Matthew chapter 1 verses 22 and 23 that all this, all this being the birth of Christ and how that came to be. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God keeps his word. He can be trusted. Many of you have heard this saying, God means what he says and says what he means. In other words, God is not given to flights of fancy, half-truths, or empty promises. His promises are ironclad because his character is ironclad. In Psalm 12, verse 6, it says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in the furnace on the ground, purified seven times. God, speaking of himself in Isaiah 46, says, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Neither is time a factor that diminishes the strength of God's promises nor his ability to keep them. He doesn't forget the promises he's made. God doesn't have a bad week and then decides, you know what, I'm not going to do what I said that I was going to do. 
God never finds himself in an experience where he's in over his head and then he has to walk back what he said because he can't keep his promise. Paul writing to Timothy tells him that though we are faithless, which we are often, that God is faithful because he cannot deny himself. God cannot be any other than who he is, which is a pursuing, saving, almighty, promise-keeping God. Is there anything God cannot do for his people? Put a better way, is there anything God has promised to do in Christ, to fulfill in Christ that he will not bring to pass? Is there any redemption from the ruin and brokenness of sin, the evil done against us and the evil that we have done to others and so offended a holy God that God cannot accomplish in us if we entrust ourselves to his son? Is there anything? The answer is no. There's nothing he can't accomplish for his people. The answer is no. There's no promise he won't fulfill in Christ. Paul, writing to the church in current, in current, writes, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. There's nothing that God will not do as he has promised to do. See also that this child is a remedy for our sins. As one of my favorite pastors likes to say, you are all sensible people. If you've been paying attention to what's been going on internationally, you know that things are a mess. This nation has invaded this nation. This other nation in this other part of the world is scaring the nations around it because it's growing in its ascendancy, ascendancy and being aggressive in its actions. This terrorist organization has invaded this country, and so now they've gone to war. Or maybe international geopolitics is not your own thing. So let's talk about our own country. Well, some of you will say, okay, let's not. Okay, so we won't. Let's talk about our homes. Which one of you is willing to pull back the curtains on what's going on in your homes and share that with us? Now, to be sure, I'm sure that there are godly families in this congregation. I'm sure there are also other families that are fraught with conflict in this congregation. What's the problem? Why is that so? Well, you all know, but let's take a journey back to Genesis and just read a portion of the account that we can get an answer to be reminded, rather, of why things are the way they are. Read with me. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. 
And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? What is the problem? The problem is sin. That's our problem. Sin has made a separation between us and our God. And the fallout from it has released horror, death, and destruction on a scale beyond our wildest collective imaginations. So, what is the solution? How do we bridge the gap between us and God? We can't. But one can. And he did. The one prophesied to come in Genesis 3.15 who would crush the head of the serpent. The one who would be the son of David, one of his physical descendants, and would yet be his Lord. You see, man sinned and man caused the problem, but man can't fix the problem. So God, specifically the son of God, the second member of the Trinity, becomes a man, a human, a child. Born like one of us. He grows up like one of us. But in a very real sense, he is unlike any one of us. He's perfect, without moral flaws, no moral failures. In short, he's perfect. So far, so good, right? Well, then he experiences what we have all experienced. He is sinned against, and in the most outrageous exchange ever made in human history, or that ever will be made for that matter, he dies in the place of those who sinned against him. Us. You. Me. People. Everywhere. At all times. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When Aaron preached last Sunday, he said something that was so wonderful. And for the life of me, I can't remember how he phrased it. But what he said, in effect, was this, that when you have the incarnation, the mystery of God becoming a baby, you cannot separate that from the truth of the crucifixion. We are all born and then we die. I was greatly helped by one of my professors to think of this in a profound way I would not considered. He was relaying to his students how he'd had his first grandchild and he was praying over this grandchild as a granddaughter and holding her in his hands and praying blessings over her. And then he told us, he said, Oh child, you have now begun the long march to judgment. You have now begun the long march to judgment. I have four children, and they will all stand before the bar of God's judgment. 
and so will yours. We are all born and then we die. But this child was born to die. How many of you brought children into the world and said, I'm looking forward to their crucifixion? Anybody? No, you were looking forward to them being an engineer, a doctor, a DJ. That's what you dream. Nothing wrong with DJs, but... But this child came to die. I can't even comprehend what that's like. But I don't have to, because the father faced the reality of that through his son for us. Christians talk about the ground being level at the foot of the cross. What we're saying is that regardless of your purse, pedigree, position or possession, now I get it, men don't carry purses, but I was working on alliteration, so just go with me. All of us need to be cured of the great disease of sin by the great physician. You see, because Marty, Aaron, and I are pastors, we don't have a secret Jesus phone. We don't get more access to God than you all have. As a matter of fact, the scripture is very clear, very soberingly, that we are in greater danger. But that is another matter all entirely. If you're not looking to Christ for forgiveness, to whom or to what are you looking to? Perhaps you think you have something, something you've, you've done, something you've achieved that is enough to satisfy God's utter demand for perfection. Or perhaps you think because you come to church, you pray, you read your Bible, and give that, that satisfies God's demand for utter perfection. There's a story about the great Welsh preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, arguably the greatest preacher of the 20th century. And after he had preached a sermon, someone came up to him and told him how awesome that sermon was. To which he responded, the devil already told me that. The point he was making was that he, his identity, his hope, wasn't in his preaching or anything else anybody else thought about him. His hope is in Christ. What is your hope in? What are you banking on? What am I banking on? So the point isn't that we shouldn't get compliments, we, that we shouldn't be encouraged, that we shouldn't take pleasure in our achievements. The question is, are we looking to those things to make us acceptable to God? Or are we looking to his provision of a child born 2,000 years ago? You see also there in Isaiah that this child will reign. 
it's interesting to me there's no other indication there's no indication given that this shoulder or excuse me that the government will be on anybody else's shoulders but this child that's because when he rules he will bear the burden alone as one commentator says his people's shoulders are delivered when he accepts the burden of rule and yet amazingly enough this child will share his rule and his reign with his co-heirs. Now tell me that's not just unimaginable. That just makes no sense whatsoever. What have we done to deserve any rule, any reign? You all know what we deserve. In Matthew 11, Jesus says that everything has been handed over to him by the Father. As a matter of fact, it's because of that that he invites us to come to him and lay down our burdens, that he will take them up for us. If you read the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus calls his disciples to him, this time to send them out in what we call the Great Commission, that they should go out teaching everything that he's taught them, making disciples, baptizing in his name, the Father's name, and the name of the Holy Spirit. And again, the reason he's able to do this is because of the supreme authority that the Father has given him. The supreme authority that the Father has delegated to him. But let's be honest with ourselves. It doesn't really look like King Jesus is reigning and on his throne, does it? The author of Hebrews would agree with you. He says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But he will rule and reign. Turn with me, lastly, to Revelation. This is an encouragement for you for what is coming, because God keeps his word. Revelation. Chapter 1, I'm just going to read verses 5 through 7, actually through verse 8 as well. This is John, who around 90 AD on the island of Patmos was exiled. And the Lord, by his spirit, revealed to him what was to come. Revelation chapter 1. Verses 5 through 8. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. See, John shows us that God will keep his word. Jesus will set up his government. He will rule and reign. He will right every wrong. God has said it, and he will accomplish it. God has said it, and he will accomplish it. It's been 2,000 years. 
give or take, since Christ ascended to heaven? It's a long time. How many more thousands of years passed from Genesis 3 to when Christ was born? I'd say in all in all, we're not doing too bad, are we? The Lord will accomplish it. The Lord promised that his son would come and he came. The Lord promises that his son will return and so he will. We can take that to the bank. Have your shoulders been delivered from the burden of self-rule? If not, how much longer do you plan to live in your disobedience and self-deception? The Lord Jesus stands ready to deliver you from your sin. He offers you the gift of salvation because God has fulfilled his promise in his son. He will also fulfill his promise to save all those who look to him. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Father, I find it very telling that at the resurrection of your Son, that the women who went to the grave and saw the angels, and the angels said to them, He is not here, He is risen, just as He has said. Lord, you have helped me to see clearly as I looked at Jesus on the Emmaus Road and how He didn't first console those two travelers on the road who were grief-stricken at his crucifixion. But he admonished them, he chided them, he rebuked them, he called them slow of heart to believe. And it was through your word, your word passed down to us through the ages, your word that we looked at today, that he called them to in order to believe. Oh Lord, we ask that you would help us to believe and so believing that we would trust in your son and having trusted in your son we would go forth and make the disciples because all authority has been given to him all authority in heaven and earth lord he will rule and reign visibly he rules and reigns in our hearts now would you help us to look forward to to the day and live in such great anticipation of his return that those around us who are unbelievers would scarcely understand why, but would be compelled to come see, come taste and see that you are good in your son and that we would so encourage each other. Please, Lord, we desperately need it. I desperately need it. Would you help us, please, for your son's sake? And in his name we pray. Amen.